Our text this morning will be Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. So please turn there with me if you would. We live in a world today that is full of fine print, full of hidden fees. So whether you're listening to a timeshare presentation or you're listening to a political candidate make promises, whether you're watching a pharmaceutical commercial during a football game, there's always fine print. There's always some hidden clause. There's always some exception to the warranty, right, that you don't know about until it's too late. The world is like that, but Jesus is not. Jesus is not someone who buries hidden clauses, hidden fees, and things that he doesn't want you to know about. Jesus doesn't surprise us with the cost of discipleship. He gives full disclosure up front and and wants to make sure that you and I know exactly what we are signing up for. And it's in our text this morning that we find this cost of discipleship as Jesus has three interactions with three different prospective disciples as he is on the road. I'd like to direct your attention to Luke 9, verse 57. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The point is simple. Those who follow Jesus must count the cost. We must count the cost. So the natural question we ask is, what is the cost? What exactly is it that Christ calls us to? What is it that we have to be willing to give up? What is it that it's going to require of us if we say yes to Jesus? Well, this text offers us three requirements for those who would follow Jesus. We're going to look at them this morning. The first requirement is this. Following Jesus, as we see in verses 57 and 58, following Jesus requires a willingness to embrace difficulty. It requires a willingness to embrace difficulty. As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Oftentimes we think of this famous saying of Jesus as something that ought to elicit sympathy for Christ, that we should feel sorry for him for everything he had to go through. And while we ought to be struck by the radical humility of Jesus, Really, this statement is meant to inform us as to the cost. Jesus, in verse 51, as we saw earlier in this chapter, is making his way towards Jerusalem. Luke tells us when the days drew near for him to be taken up, his face was set to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is on a mission. He is fully resolved to go to Jerusalem, and it is there that he will be betrayed, arrested, condemned, scourged, crucified. That's where Jesus is going. And as they are on the way towards this destination, this man calls out to Jesus, and his commitment seems remarkable. Look at what he says. I will follow you wherever you go. That's commendable, right? This seems like quite the commitment. Later, the apostle Peter made a similar pledge. Luke chapter 22, verse 33, 
Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I think Jesus recognizes in this man that like Peter, he's also not quite prepared to follow through. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that this man who claims he will follow Jesus anywhere, he's actually one of the scribes, which is surprising to us because usually in the Gospels, the scribes are the ones that are opposed to Jesus. The scribes are those who are antagonistic towards him, towards his teaching, resistant towards his authority. But this man seems interested in Christ and he's eager to join. Perhaps he believes that Jesus really is the Christ. Maybe he's been convinced because of Christ's authoritative teaching and his miraculous works that he is the Messiah. And this man perhaps is eager to be part of that kingdom that Jesus is preaching about. You also have to wonder if maybe this man sees following Jesus as a really good career move. Jesus is an up-and-coming rabbi who's making quite the mark on the scene in Israel. And to join himself to Jesus as perhaps the first of the scribes to get it right and join with the Messiah, that, that would have been a really good move for this man's scribal career. He thinks Jesus is a winner, and he wants to be on the winning team. It's also interesting to think of this from the perspective of Jesus and, and the other disciples. This would have been a major addition to their group, Right? I mean, it's a group of fishermen and a tax collector, and, you know, and they're following a carpenter. This isn't an educated group. This isn't a group that has any sort of academic um, cachet with, with the whole scene of the intellectuals and the leaders in Israel. They were just from Galilee. To have a scribe on their team, to have someone who is educated and respected and credentialed, someone who had the knowledge that this man had and the skills that this man had, that would have been an incredible resource for them. It would have been a huge help. We always think like this, don't we? Aren't we tempted to think that, man, if that one celebrity would just get saved and believe in Christ, you know, they could become a spokesman for Christianity. We want the world's experts to be on our team. We want the world's influencers, the world's leaders. We want them to see the light and join us. And there's nothing wrong with that, but underneath that desire is often this assumption that if we can just get someone who has a lot of impact to be on our team, then we can make a dent, then we can make a splash, then we can really promote God's truth and see his kingdom advance. So you would think that Jesus would be eager to seal the deal and close the deal and get this scribe to join his band of disciples and receive this man's pledge of loyalty. But Jesus is not desperate for followers. Jesus doesn't need this man. This man needs Jesus. To make it even more personal, Jesus doesn't need us. We need Jesus. And so Jesus is going to be very honest with this man. He wants to make sure that this scribe, who has a lot to lose... Make sure that he knows what he's signing up for, that he understands that following Jesus will not be some shortcut to glory in the kingdom. Following him will not be a smart career move. It's not going to be something that puts him on the map in the way that perhaps he's thinking. It means he must share in Jesus' rejection. It means that he must share in the difficulty that Jesus will face. We see this in Jesus' response in verse 58. 
Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Ironically, the creatures have a place to shelter and rest. They have a home, but the creator does not. And if this man is going to go with Jesus, he must share in that same experience. Jesus was dependent on the hospitality of others as he traveled on his, during his ministry, and he was often rejected. We've seen it all throughout the Gospel of Luke. We saw in chapter 4 that Jesus was rejected in his own hometown. In Nazareth, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Jesus was rejected in chapter 8 by those whom he had helped in the region of the Gerasenes. He restores this man who had been afflicted by demons and and the locals, they come to this place and they see that there's a bunch of floating pigs in the Sea of Galilee and this man is now clothed and in his right mind and instead of welcoming Jesus, they beg him to depart. They reject him. We saw last week Jesus was rejected by the Samaritans. Despite his ministry there, despite his gracious offer to stay with them, we can see it if you run your eyes up the page in verse 53. The people in this village in Samaria, they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus' entire ministry was one of rejection. Eventually, this would culminate in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is headed. And the crowds are going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. You see, before the crown comes the cross, before the exaltation and the glory of the kingdom comes Jesus' humiliation, his suffering, and his death. That's the way it works. So if this man is going to travel with Jesus, it means he too must be prepared to experience that rejection and all the difficulties that come with it. You see, there's a danger in the heart that Jesus is exposing. It's easy to want the benefits of following Jesus, but not be ready for the sacrifices that necessarily come with it. It's easy to misjudge the cost. It's easy for us to even have the wrong expectations. And the cost of following Jesus is that when you commit to Christ, when you say yes to his lordship over you, it means that your life may actually get more difficult, not easier. There's a parallel to what Jesus is saying here back in chapter 8 in the parable of the soils. Remember the seed that falls on the rocky soil? At first, it springs up, but then later when the sun comes out, it withers It dies because it has no root. And Jesus explains to the disciples that this is symbolic of those who at first receive the gospel, and at first they seem interested in following Jesus, but later when things get hard, when trials come, when there's adversity and opposition and difficulty, they fall away because their faith is not genuine. Listen, we've enjoyed living in a culture that historically has been very friendly to Christianity because it was greatly influenced by Christianity, but that's rapidly changing, which means that people don't understand us. They don't like what we believe. They don't like what we have to say. They don't like how we live. Taking the name of Christ historically has always meant being hated by the world. We've lived in an exceptional time where that cost has been more minimal, but it's going to increase We're facing increasing social pressure, increasing political pressure. Some of you have to be very careful at work. Some of you have to be very careful at school. Some of you have to be very careful with your family members. And in all likelihood, things are only going to get more difficult as things progress, not easier. 
And listen, if that is not something that you are willing to embrace, then Jesus says you're not yet ready to follow him. Because those who follow Jesus, it requires that we be willing to embrace difficulty. It comes with the program. If you look back in verse 23, Jesus has already told us what discipleship requires. Chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is simply explaining what that means to this man. For you to take up your cross and follow me means you're going to give up the comforts of life. It means you're going to face difficulty and rejection. You're going to be ostracized. Are you ready for that? Listen, our idolatry of comfort is something that has to be rooted out. Our idolatry of ease and the approval of man is something we need to repent of. Our concern and care for self must be surrendered. Paul tells Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.3. Those are our marching orders. This is what we are called to. And if we're unwilling to face difficulty, if we are unwilling to embrace that aspect of the cost of following Jesus, then Jesus says, you're not ready yet to follow me. In this interaction, Jesus exposes wrong expectations, and he clarifies exactly what it will cost to follow him. Following Jesus, first of all, requires embracing difficulties. There's a second requirement. Number two, following Jesus also requires adopting a new priority, adopting a new priority. We see this in verse 59 and 60. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This is the call of Jesus. In this second interaction, it's different than the first. This time, Jesus initiates. This time, Jesus speaks directly to someone in the crowd, and he calls them to follow him. And we've seen this before, haven't we? We saw this back in chapter 5 as Jesus sees Levi, a tax collector, sitting at his booth, and Jesus says, follow me. And Levi leaves everything behind. He gets up and he leaves his job. He leaves all of his, his professional connections. He leaves his source of income. He leaves the table. And he goes to follow Jesus, as did Peter and Andrew, James and John. They left their boats. They left, James and John left their father and his business behind, and they immediately follow Jesus. But this man doesn't respond like that, at least not immediately. Look at his request in verse 59. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? We're not really sure of his motive because the text doesn't say. It may be that this man genuinely felt an honest sense of obligation. I mean, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. It's in the top ten. It's not a small thing. And in that culture, the honor of family and burial and inheritance and, and family land and legacy was all extremely important. They were even features of the Old Testament covenant that they had been given so it's very possible that this man felt a deep obligation to his father. This is one of the final ways in which we honor our parents is by that process of burial. So it's possible this man has an honest and sincere conviction. Some people speculate that there's actually more going on here, that perhaps this man's father was not yet dead. If this man's father was dead, he would not have been listening to Jesus and, and kind of following, tagging along, watching to see what Jesus would do. They didn't practice uh, very much embalming. I mean, Jewish burial had to happen fairly rapidly. 
And so some people think that perhaps this man's father is elderly, perhaps he has a terminal illness, or perhaps that's not even the case, and this man is just saying, listen, I'll follow you after my father dies because I don't want to risk missing out on the inheritance. If I leave now, my father may see me as a disloyal son, and I might miss out on being the recipient of that inheritance that I'm really counting on getting from my father. If that's the case, then there's a financial motivation under the surface. But we really aren't told. Is this man honest and sincere? Is his heart actually after the inheritance? We aren't told. What is clear is what Jesus says in response. Look at Jesus' response because it's striking in verse 60. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is a play on words. Here's what Jesus is meaning. Those who do not follow Jesus, they are, in a sense, dead. They are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We may be alive. We may be walking around in this earth. We may be working jobs and having a family and speaking and listening. But spiritually, we are dead. We are numb, cold to the things of God. There's no pulse of faith in us. There is no breath of life in us spiritually. We are dead apart from Christ. Later on, when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, he will describe the father as saying, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The the prodigal son, as he rejects God and his ways, is living, but he's dead. And it's in that, that sense that Jesus uses the word, let the dead spiritually bury those who are dead physically. Jesus is saying, I understand your father needs to be buried, whether that's tomorrow or whether that's in six months, whatever the case may be. But leave that to others because the spiritually dead are fully capable of burying the physically dead. But I have a new priority for you. I have an important task for you, something that a spiritually dead person cannot do. You are to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It's a new priority. And it's even more pressing, even more important than that obligation to bury your father. This new priority is what Jesus himself is committed to. Luke chapter 4, 43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus says, this is my priority. Even though there's people here in Capernaum who still need to be healed, people here in Capernaum who still have questions for me, I need to go to the next town and preach there. This is why I was sent. This mission of proclaiming the gospel is not only what Jesus came to do, it's also the mission he will give to his followers. In Luke chapter 24, verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus takes this priority of proclaiming the gospel to the world, and he says, I'm now handing it to you. This is now your task. My mission of proclaiming this good news has become your mission. Listen, when you come to Christ, all of your other priorities, even important ones, they are made relative. They are made secondary to a great new priority. Yes, we should honor family. 
Yes, there are many good and necessary things that we have as commitments in our life. But none of those duties should be discharged at the expense of obeying and serving Christ. If we have to pick between Jesus and anything else, even burying our father, Jesus says, I have to be your priority. This is the supremacy of Christ on display. It is his mission. It is his message. It is his glory that must be simply greater in our lives than any other concern. The priority of Christ and his glory and his mission is a greater priority than your hobbies. It's more important than hunting. It's more important than golf. It's more important than music. It's more important than your home improvement projects. It's greater than your financial planning, your strategies for retirement, your business plans. The priority of Christ is even greater than your family commitments. It's more important than making your spouse happy. It's more important than your kids liking you. It's greater than your athletic or academic endeavors. Following Christ is more important than your political causes. Fill in the blank. Anything you can come up with that may be a priority in your life is secondary. It must be secondary to Christ. Thankfully, there are many times in which those other priorities will not be in conflict with serving Christ. Many times our loyalty to Christ is expressed in the way we love our family. It's expressed in the way that we go about our athletic or academic endeavors. But when there's a tension between the two, Christ must be supreme. Following Jesus requires that we adopt this new priority. Jesus has to be first. And listen, your highest priority will always be reflected by what you do, what you invest your time and effort in. That's why Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Let someone else take care of that other thing. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The danger here that Jesus is exposing in the heart of this man is a non-committal interest in Jesus. Perhaps that describes some who are here today. You're interested in Jesus. That's why you're here. You're listening to a long sermon from a text of scripture that is thousands of years old because you are interested in Jesus. But listen, the kind of interest in Jesus that is unwilling to commit to him, that's not saving faith. Jesus says, that's not what I'm after. Again, this is pictured in the parable of the soils. Some of the seed, remember, falls among the thorns. At first, it springs up. There's people that are interested in Jesus, but later, it's choked out by the weeds. Jesus explains to his disciples, those that sprout up at first, but they're distracted by the cares and concerns of this world with riches and other things in this world, he says there's no root. That's not saving faith. What is it in your heart or in your life that competes with Jesus? That's a valid question we need to answer. What might compete with your loyalty to Christ? What keeps you from saying, yes, Lord, to whatever it is that Jesus is calling, calling you to? He may not be calling you to skip your dad's funeral. There's probably something else. What is it that Christ is calling you to do? And you want to negotiate. You want to make excuses. You want to, you know, Plead with him and say, well, I, I really have these other things that are kind of weighing on me right now, and that's why I can't say yes to you. Why don't you have time to be in the Word? Why don't you have time to be involved with the church? Why don't you have time for relationships and discipleship and ministry? Why don't you have time? 
to speak to the lost about Jesus. Friend, if I can be direct, you do have time, but you've chosen to spend it on something else. Following Jesus requires that we adopt a new priority, that Christ, his glory, his mission, his agenda, that has to be first for us. We've looked at two of these requirements. It requires a willingness to suffer difficulty, face difficulty. It requires adopting a new priority. There's a third priority or a third requirement that Jesus brings out in verses 61 and 62. Following Jesus requires a transferal of loyalty, a transferal of loyalty. Yet another said, verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the second interaction that has to do with family, but he's making a slightly different point. I believe he's talking here about loyalty, about loyalty. In the third and final interaction, this man calls out to Jesus. He initiates the conversation, but as he, he professes his desire to follow Jesus, he wants to negotiate the terms. He wants to follow Jesus on his own timetable. And so he offers really a commitment with a catch, a commitment with a catch. He declares his commitment to Christ. He even calls him Lord. He's respectful. But he makes a request, and it's a reasonable request. He says, let me first go say farewell to my family. Again, the honor of family is important. But what's interesting is I think there's even an Old Testament precedent for this request. We've seen multiple times in Luke's gospel that Jesus' ministry has different parallels and connections with the Old Testament ministry of Elijah. Once again, we see an echo here. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, we see a story of Elijah, the prophet, calling and anointing another man whose name is Elisha. He took him on as his apprentice as his disciple, you could say, because Elisha would carry Elijah's mantle. After Elijah's departure, Elisha would be God's prophet to the nation Israel. After God commissions Elijah to go anoint Elisha, 1 Kings 19, 19, it says, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. So Elisha's working hard. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. It's a symbolic act saying, I want you to fill my shoes when I'm gone. Verse 20 says that Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? Translated meaning, that's fine. I'm not keeping you from doing that. Verse 21 says he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Elisha, when he's called to follow Elijah, goes back, says farewell to his family, and he takes care of some matters. Sacrificing the oxen basically says, I'm done being a farmer. You guys have a barbecue, but I'm going to go follow Elijah now. And so there's this Old Testament sort of precedent. And I think that this man, as he calls out and says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me do this. I think he's sort of feeling out whether or not this is appropriate. But look at Jesus' response in verse 62. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back 
is fit for the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is saying, I, I, I know what you're talking about. There's that story about oxen and a plow. If we're going to talk about plows, let me draw a line in the sand. There's no looking back. There's no looking back. Elisha may have done this before following his new master, Elijah, but Jesus is not Elijah. And following Jesus is not like following Elijah. Just as the miracles of Jesus are far greater than Elijah's miracles, so also the demands of Jesus are far greater. Allegiance to Christ trumps all other loyalties, including family. Jesus has already explained that the gospel really redefines true family. We saw this in Luke 8, 19. When Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. There's a radical shift that takes place. When we say yes to following Christ, it even redefines family relationships There's a transferal of loyalty. Later, Jesus will teach again on this subject in Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We'll talk more about this in a few weeks when we get to chapter 14. But this word hate is really in contrast to to the covenant love and covenant faithfulness the loyalty that was so much a part of the fabric of their society. To love God was to be loyal to him, faithful to his covenant. To hate God was to be disloyal to his covenant. So when Jesus says, hate your family, he's saying your loyalty can't ultimately be to them. It has to be to me. And if your highest loyalty is not to me, then you cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't trying to undermine the importance of family here. He's exposing a deeper issue. The danger in the heart that Jesus exposes is divided loyalties. Divided loyalties. An emotional tie to something in the world that would keep you from following Christ. This divided heart, Jesus says, is spiritually dangerous. Those are heavy words when he says, if you look back, you are not fit for the kingdom of God. That is sobering. We've seen examples of looking back. We see this with Lot's wife in Genesis 19. God rescued Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah right before all the destruction came. It says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. J.C. Ryle points out, we look back because we want to go back. Some of you perhaps have committed to following Jesus. There's a big piece of your heart that looks at the world and it looks at what the world offers. It looks at the way the world lives and the pleasures that the world offers and goes, I know it's the right thing to do to follow Jesus, but I really want to go back. Where are your loyalties? Israel made this same error. Exodus chapter 16 says the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. 
For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The people of Israel had just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And once they get out in the wilderness, you know what they do? They say, man, I wish we could go back. I wish we'd never left. At least there we had a good meal. Jesus warns against this kind of divided heart. A divided heart that longs to go back, that loves the world, does not reflect saving faith. What loyalties in your heart compete with Christ? Are you more loyal to certain relationships, whether that be family or friends? Are you more loyal to your political tribe than to Christ? We have an election year coming up. That's going to be fun. Where is your highest loyalty? Racial identity has become an idol in our culture, both black and white. A higher sense of loyalty to people who look like me. A sense of identity with people who look like me rather than ultimate loyalty to Christ, identity in Christ. What about loyalty to our nation? There's something that's good in that, but it can't be our highest loyalty. I love what C.S. Lewis wisely wrote as he talked about pacifism and war and a Christian's duty to his nation. Lewis wrote, a man may have to die for his country, but no man must in any exclusive sense live for his country. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar that which of all things most emphatically belongs to God himself. Your nation is worth dying for, but it's not worth living for. That can't be our highest loyalty. Listen, even the earthly church and its human leaders cannot be your highest loyalty. We had a reformation a couple hundred years ago because the church was wrong. And there were men that had the courage to be loyal to Christ and loyal to his word. Because sometimes loyalty to Christ will actually put you in conflict with the church and its leaders. At the Diet of Worms in 1521, Martin Luther stood on trial before the leaders of the Catholic Church for his writings. And he said this, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So help me God, amen. That's ultimate loyalty to Christ even over and against loyalty to the earthly and human church. Listen, our loyalty ultimately has to be to Christ alone, his word alone. And that is a wholehearted commitment, Jesus says, that does not look back. We aren't told the names of these prospective disciples. We aren't even told how they responded to Jesus. We don't know the gender of the second person Jesus had a conversation with. Could have been a man, could have been a woman. We don't know. There's very minimal detail here. Did they receive Jesus's words and follow him? We don't know. And I think the fact that this account is so anonymous and without those kinds of details, it, it serves to make this story not about these disciples, but about discipleship in general. It makes Jesus's words fitting for all time, and for all people, for every situation. It means that Jesus' words to those individuals are also his words to us. 
Those who follow Jesus must count the cost. We too must be willing to face difficulty and adopt new priorities and embrace new loyalties as we respond to Jesus. Often at this point in in the sermon, I will offer, or Pastor Stephen will offer a number of different responses, applications. And I'm gonna do something a little different today. Rather than offer applications, I want to leave you with a few motivations. I'm gonna offer a few motivations in conclusion because you might be tempted to ask, as you read a text like this, you hear a sermon like this, wow, Jesus doesn't seem very persuasive. He's not a very good salesman. Is it really worth it? To follow Christ. And although it may seem like Jesus is not very persuasive on the surface, I'd like to argue that this passage is actually laced with hope. And there's some evidence, even in this text, that it is worth it. Three motivations. First of all, I would urge you to consider the person of Christ. Consider the person of Christ. Jesus makes a mention in verse 58 of himself as the Son of Man. That's not a small detail. That's not a small detail. And it means that rather than asking the question, is it worth it? We need to ask a different question. Is he worth it? Is Jesus worth it? The son of man is a reference to his glory. It's the language of Daniel 7 that describes the one who will receive the kingdom, the one who has a right to sit at the the right hand of the Father, the one who will be on the throne for all of eternity, this glorious, victorious, conquering king. That's who Jesus is. So the question is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth the cost, the difficulty, the transfer of loyalty, embracing these new priorities? Is Jesus worth it? Luke has shown us that Jesus is the glorious Christ. We saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples confessed he is the Christ of God. The Father affirmed him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So our response to all of this as we evaluate the cost, that cost needs to be set in comparison with Jesus himself. He's the son of man. And he is worth following. Apostle Paul would later write that everything else is rubbish compared to to knowing Christ. So don't ask, is it worth it? Ask, is Jesus worth it? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. That's a powerful motivation for us as we count the cost of discipleship to consider who Jesus is. Second motivation, I would urge you to consider the kingdom of Christ. Two times in this passage, Jesus makes mention of the kingdom. He tells the second individual in verse 60, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And to the third person, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus has this idea of the kingdom of God front and center in his mind. This is the destination of those who follow Christ. So as you count the cost, you consider what it costs to follow Jesus. Consider not only the person of Christ, consider the kingdom of Christ. There's a promise for us of reward, a promise of rest, a promise of glory, a promise of heaven. Is heaven worth it? That's what we ought to ask. Listen to what Jesus already said in Luke chapter six. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples, verse 20. And he said, blessed are you who are poor, For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus says the kingdom of God is emphatically worth it. That's a powerful motivation. Later in chapter 18, verse 28, the apostle Peter would respond to Jesus, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Is it worth it? Jesus is worth it, and his kingdom is worth it. Jim Elliot, the missionary, knew this. He believed it. That's why he famously wrote that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a man who's motivated by the kingdom of Christ. And then a third and final motivation, and perhaps the best, consider the work of Christ. Consider the work of Christ. You're saying, where do you find that in the text? Look in verse 57. They are going along the road. Jesus is heading somewhere. He's going to Jerusalem. He's making a beeline for the cross. His face, verse 51, is set to obey his father, to die on the cross, and to bring salvation for you through his sacrificial death. This is, I think, perhaps the most powerful motivation for us. When we consider the cost, what it is that Christ asks from us, first we must remember the cross and what it is that Jesus has provided for us, what it is that Jesus has done on our behalf, what it is that he suffered and gave up to bring us life, to bring us salvation. This was the motivation for the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. He says, the love of Christ controls us. Another way to translate that word is that it compels us. It's the love of Christ, what he did for us on the cross that keeps me from certain things, but it's also what drives me towards other things. It's the love of Christ. It's what Jesus did for me. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The old me is dead. I have this new identity, this new loyalty to Christ. He died for me. And Paul continues, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Listen, one of the purposes of Christ's death, among others, was so that you would live for him. That's what Paul says. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Listen, the cross is a powerful motivation. As we consider the cost of discipleship, remember the work of Christ. The one who calls us to carry our cross, he already carried his. And the reality of the cross not only saves us, but it shapes our lives, provides a compelling motivation. Is it worth it? We say, well, Jesus is worth it. The kingdom is worth it. And when we consider his work, what he did for us, how can we say no to the call to lay aside everything else and follow 
Jesus. As we count the cost, we discover not only that discipleship is demanding, but it's worth it, which means we say yes. And we say yes with joy. We don't embrace the cost of discipleship feeling sorry for ourselves. We don't embrace the cost of discipleship with some sort of victim mentality. No, we can do it with joy, in faith, because of who Christ is, because of the kingdom that is coming, and because of what Jesus did for us. May these words of Jesus, in his answers to these people, may those words sanctify and refine our understanding of what it means to follow him, and may we respond with faith and humble obedience to the work of our master. Would you bow and pray with me?